0: going to continue to worship through the Word of God. So I know I just said you can be seated, but actually we're going to read the Word of God here together. So if you'd stand with us, if you need a Bible, uh, you could raise your hands and someone will bring you a Bible. Actually, you don't have to do it like that. You can just do one hand up. And we're going to be on page 570, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, page 570. Of you, Look, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for allowing us to come under your word this morning and to listen from you, to receive instruction from you. And God, we, we just acknowledge our need for that this morning, that God, you'd speak to us. God, would you speak? That's what we need. Into our lives, into our hearts. God, we long for you and we ask that God, you would show up this morning and that through your proclaimed word, God we'd be made new. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we continue this series entitled Advancing in Joy through the book of Philippians, we're starting chapter two and there's a turn that's made in chapter two. Chapter one, we see very, very simply, really God, ha- God is using the apostle Paul to share of this one goal and the one goal that the Apostle Paul has in Philippians chapter 1 is that there is the advancement of the gospel. And you see that theme throughout chapter 1, the advancement of the gospel. Verse, chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about our partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. how That is the work that brings us together. That's what can bring about different races, ethnicities, age groups. No matter what it is, it's the gospel that unites us and it's the gospel that gives us a mission and purpose in our togetherness. And we see later on in chapter 12 that Paul is imprisoned and his imprisonment, his suffering... Is actually taking place for the advancement of the gospel. That the gospel is being proclaimed, that it's being spread throughout the imperial guard, and that also those who are outside of the prison are emboldened to speak more about the gospel because the apostle Paul is in chains. And so the gospel is advancing, even though it looks as though it should be thwarted, it's not. God is continually working for the advancement of the gospel. And then he says in verse 27 he says to the church he said now that you would live a life worthy of the gospel. That the gospel would advance in our hearts. And as the gospel advance in our hearts the world would see that God is the one that is glorious and that God is the one that's doing this work in shaping our lives and molding our lives in order to show that Jesus Christ is to be glorified above all else. And there's a shift that's made into chapter 2. Now notice how chapter 1 talked a lot about the person of Jesus and a lot about the gospel, but didn't really describe what the gospel is or what the gospel does. So chapter 2 begins to unpack that. And what we're going to see here primarily in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, is that the gospel... Makes us humble. The gospel makes us humble. I want to share with you this illustration from Booker T. Washington. He was the president of an American African uh, American African American university, and after he became president of Tuskegee, Tuskegee University. He was in an exclusive part of town, and here's where the story leaves off with Booker T. Washington. He was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing that this was the famous Mr. Washington in her sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. Because he had no pressing business at the moment, Professor Washington smiled and he rolled up his sleeves. And he proceeded to do the humble chore that she requested. When he was finished, he carried the logs into her house and stacked them by the fireplace. But there was a little girl that recognized him and later revealed to the woman his identity. The next morning, the embarrassed woman went to see Mr. Washington in his office at the Institute and apologized profusely. It's perfectly all right, madame, he replied. Occasionally. I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, I always delight to do something for a friend. She shook his hand and, hand and warmly assured him that his meek and gracious attitude had endeared him and his work to her heart. Not long after that, she showed her admiration by persuading some of her wealthy acquaintances to join her in donating thousands of dollars to the Tuskegee University. This is humility, considering others more important than ourselves, more significant than ourselves, not looking to the interests of others. Now, chances are, as I acknowledge and I start to ask the question in reading this passage, I'm I'm asking the question Am I humble? Am I humble? And when I ask that question, oftentimes I'm, I'm so easily given to comparison, right? If you compare yourself to a, a a person that you think to be humble, you would probably say, no, I'm not that humble. But then if you th- compare yourself to a person that you think to be prideful, you'll say, I'm, I'm pretty humble. So you got Donald Trump and Billy Graham on, on one side and Billy Graham on the other side, you'd probably think that, okay, I'm not Billy Graham, but at the other side, I'm not Donald Trump. So I... Not prideful and I'm not humble, right? That's the way most of us feel about this thing called humility. But the Bible tells us that humility is the necessary ingredient for the Christian life. That without humility, there is not Christianity in you. That without humility, says the Apostle Paul, there is no unity. And unity is what the church is called to be marked for. And in fact, this passage reveals to us that ultimately what Paul is talking about and he uses some of the most poetic and beautiful theological language to get there is that the church would be unified through humility. An author and pastor, William Law, an old Puritan preacher, says this, there can be no sure proof of confirmed pride than a belief that one is sufficiently humble. So there's a great danger here if we think that we are sufficiently humble, especially if we look at comparisons. But humility ultimately points us to the cross. And it's at the cross that we all can say I am not sufficiently humble. I am not sufficiently humble, but I am in need of humility, and that God would do the work of breaking pride that leads to disunity, and that leads to divisions among us, in us, and outside of us. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In verses 1 through 4, what we see that humility is found through unity in Christ. Humility is found through unity in Christ. Paul goes to unpack these blessings that come as a result of the gospel and the blessings of the gospel that he says here, so if there is any, he asks the question, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if you've received the grace of Christ and it has uplifted your heart if there's any comfort from his love, if you've felt his affection and his warm embrace in your heart in life, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God is alive in your heart and brings both the conviction of sin and also the drive to walk in holiness and purity, if there's affection and sympathy If your heart has been softened by Christ, it says, complete my joy. So if these things have happened, and the Apostle Paul is assuming these things have happened in the church of Philippi, it's not as if he says, if these things have happened, he's saying, since these things have happened, these things have happened in Jesus Christ, they've taken place in you. Complete my joy by being one in Jesus Christ. The uniting factor of the church is not any personality in the room. The uniting factor in the church is not any of our agendas. The uniting factor in the church is the unity and the oneness that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's what brings the church together. So what makes the church a force that this world has never seen before. That's what has allowed the church to endure for 2,000 years and is going to go long, 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 long beyond any of our lifetimes should Jesus not come back in our lifetime. The church endures because we are united in Jesus Christ leads me to ask the question what is it that gets in the way of that unity because if we're called to be unified what is it that gets in the way of that unity well the answer would be pride the answer would be pride gets in the way of unity because pride gets in the way of humility if humility is the necessary ingredient for the church to come together, pride is the ingredient that breaks the church apart. It is pride. St. Thomas or I'm sorry it was St. Augustine that says that pride is the ground by which all sin grows. That's the ground by which all sin grows, meaning that sin actually comes up from the ground of pride. And we saw pride in the garden with Adam and Eve when they said that they wanted to be like God. It was Satan that was able to sway them and say that they would be like God. That was pride that led them to eat the forbidden fruit and to disobey and dishonor God. It was Satan and his in the fallen angels that were driven by pride to want to be like God as well and that pride is the ground by which it's watered so that sin grows up from and pride is so subtle isn't it it's so subtle it's, it seems to move in ways that we cannot see it in fact most of the reasons why we can't see pride is because we're prideful we're blinded by our own pride. Yesterday, my girls were playing. Actually, we were, Carrie and I were trying to get a little extra sleep. It was Saturday. It's really our only day to, to get a little extra sleep. And it's 7 a.m. and the kids uh, are, are up. And the other day, Lily saw a toy inside the closet that she wanted to play with. And so this toy had been lying dormant in the closet for months, right? And Lily wanted to play with it. And that morning, Lily had had that toy. And this is before we were even awake. She was playing nice and peacefully out in the family room with this toy that was almost new to her because they hadn't played with it for some time. Now, the toy didn't belong to Lily. It actually belonged to Adeline. And so we are awakened in the morning to Adeline coming outside of her bedroom, seeing this toy that was in Lily's hands, yelling that it was mine, and then her grabbing that toy, and then Lily thus getting upset and crying because Adeline took the toy that, that, that rightfully belonged to her. And this is where you see pride even in your children, right? And it gives you a glimpse of the pride in yourself because pride says that's mine and takes it, doesn't it? Where the proper response would have been, Okay, Lily, you could play with that toy. Can I have it when I'm done with it? And much of the conversation that we have in our house is teaching our kids how to live peaceably with one another because they're seven, seven, and five. And with twins that are seven and a five-year-old being born close together, they find, I find that they either really love each other or they really hate each other. There's really nothing in the middle of that. And what gets in the way of unity is them not seeing that they're selfish. And that they will try to get what they think they deserve in order to accomplish what they want. And this is the way that pride works. Pride says, I deserve. Pride says, I'm entitled. Pride says, I must have it. And that's why the Apostle Paul continues to unpack this by saying, do nothing. If you've received these blessings, if you receive the encouragement in Christ, the comfort of love, the unity of the Spirit of God, if you're driven by God's affection and sympathy, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is, I deserve, so I get and I take. That's, that's really the definition of sin, isn't it? That's why out of pride comes sin. It's mine, I deserve it, I'm going to take it. Now we all know that what is rightfully ours in this world that we should take it or deserve it. But yet pride makes us believe that we're entitled to these things and so we then take those things in order to get what we want. And this is how disunity works in the church. This is how disunity works in our world. Is when selfish ambition compels us, it causes us to see not others as more significant than ourselves, but less than ourselves. That's why pride is so damaging, because it says, I'm better than, and they're less than. And so therefore, I have a right to use and abuse And to take things that don't belong to me. It's so damaging. You see this in politics. Rather than having a civil debate over the issues and look at things objectively, if you're on one political side of the aisle, then there's a tendency to demonize the people on the other political side of the aisle. If you're on the other pe- political side of the aisle, then there's a tendency to demonize people over here. Instead of dealing with the issues, you attack the person, a person who, by the way, is made in the image of God, a person who God cares much for a person who God has created for his glory. You see that the sin that takes place because of pride isn't just a sin that takes place against one another, but it's a sin against a holy and righteous God. Because God has made us in his image, and when we live in pride and we sin against one another, the sin isn't just against one another. No, we've got beef with God. And that sin against God is what drives a wedge between us and God and us and one another. And the result of that is a fallen and broken world by which we are full contributors of. Pride is the ground by which all sin grows. And we've got to be careful not to pour water on it and let it grow and think that that pride is so good. We've got to be careful that we don't cultivate and we don't take care of that garden and let it grow because if it grows, the fruit will not be good. Now, if pride is the ground by which all sin grows, the converse is true. Humility is the ground by which all righteousness grows. And it's the gospel that brings humility. It's the gospel that brings humility. You wanna try to define humility by looking at a standard worldly definition, you won't find it. You won't find the definition of humility. And do you know why that is true? Because humility is not a virtue in our culture, it is a vice. Humility is not a virtue in our culture, it is a vice. Think about our celebrities. Think about the people that are celebrated in our culture, the sports stars. Think about all the people that we celebrate in the world around us, and those people happen to be probably some of the most prideful people versus the most humble. And we seek to emulate those people. But no, humility, humility can only be defined by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to adequately show what humility is. So, Paul says, don't do this. Don't pursue selfish ambition. Don't pursue conceit, which is vain glory, seeking the glory for yourself. Don't pursue those things. But rather... Count others more significant than yourselves? that 's why I used the illustration of Booker T. Washington earlier. He deserved something far different. But yet Booker T. Washington humbled himself. And the amazing thing happened is that when we will humble ourselves, God will exalt us. It's absolutely amazing how the kingdom of God is an upside-down economy. That those who are low will be made high. That those who are high will be brought low. And you see that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at with me. Look at verse 5. With me here. Have this in mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. So listen. Paul's saying have this in mind. Have this in mind among yourself, this unity in in mind among yourself, which is already yours in Jesus. This unity is already yours in Jesus Christ. And then he begins to point to Jesus Christ as our ultimate example of unity, of Christian behavior. And so the second point, what we're gonna see in verses five through eight is that humility comes through Jesus Christ's example. Humility is found in Jesus Christ's example. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This passage that we're going to read and that we're going to study is one of the most theologically rich passages in all of scripture, but rather than just soaking our minds in it, the Apostle Paul wanted us to soak our hearts in it so that our actions would change. Paul didn't just write theology for theology's sake, Paul wrote theology to change our minds and to change our actions. And that's why the Apostle Paul gives us this passage. Not so that we could just contemplate this deep theological work, but that this deep theological work would lead to action and transformation on our part. And he does that by grounding our actions in the actions that have first been grounded in Jesus Christ. The humility of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God. Think about that. If there's anybody that should have came in this world saying, I deserve it, it should have been Jesus, right? If there's anyone that should have came to this world and said, that's my toy, <laughs> give it to me, it should have been Jesus. The, the, in in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the apostle Paul says, for You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is the great reversal. You have God, the king of kings, on his throne who chose to go low. That's so different from the rest of this world. Everybody in this world is trying to go from the bottom up. But here you have in Jesus Christ a king who went from the top to the bottom for the sake of his people. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he chose poverty for your sake. He wasn't trying to win the lottery. He wasn't trying to get something he didn't already have. This is a king who had everything and laid it aside for his subjects. There's no other king like that. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. That's a, that's something that, that, you know, most of the time our hands are like this, aren't they? Mine, mine, mine. We just try to grasp onto anything that we can. Jesus' hands weren't holding on to something that was his. He laid aside. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus laid aside being God. No, he didn't. What was added to his divinity was his humanity. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God sent to be the Son of Man to redeem a lost and broken world and in order to redeem mankind, the incarnation had to take place. Jesus Christ had to become a man. He had to wear skin because sacrifice had to take place for mankind. It was mono for mono. It was, it was, it was sin had to be paid for and an animal sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Our earning couldn't take place. We cannot earn our way to God. Jesus is had to become a man so that the, the sacrifice, the penalty of sin would be paid and it would be acceptable. Man had to die for man and Jesus became a man in order to die for man. We continue on. It says, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see the incarnation where God became man as an example of humility. And you see the crucifixion where God paid the penalty for man as an example of humility. When you look at the cross, you should see two things. Converge. You see the holiness of God in the depths of your sin. Right? So when you see the holiness of God and you don't see the cross, you know what a right response should be in our life? Well, it would have been okay if God killed me in my sleep last night. Because he's so holy. And I am not. I am utterly sinful. Sinful. But when you look to the cross, you see that instead of God killing you in your sleep last night, Jesus Christ paid that penalty in full on the cross. That's the holiness of God and the depravity of your sin coming into collision and it comes into collision at the cross of Christ. And he humbled himself to take on your sin, which, which, which ultimately means that you murdered Jesus Christ we sing the hymn it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished it means your sin put Jesus on the cross we don't look at who was ever was in charge of rome or pontius pilate or the high priest no those people while they were responsible so are we because our sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross in order that we would receive his righteousness, his holiness. You see how he's a servant? When he he went before his disciples the night he was betrayed, Jesus took on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself because he took off his outer garments. And when he had the last supper, there was no one to wash their feet. And so Jesus says, I'll wash their feet. And he served his disciples. And he gave them a glimpse of ultimately what he would do in his sacrifice for them on the cross. Jesus' humility was being obedient to God. It was what God required for the sufficient payment for sin. And Jesus Christ came to this world to pay it in full. Not my will, says Jesus, but your will be done. Even in the prayer in the garden, he says, God, take this cup from me. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's interesting. Cross. I was thinking about this morning as I looked at the cross and I thought, how did this become a symbol of love? Because in the Roman world, it wasn't even polite to talk about the cross in good company. Because the cross was an instrument of horror and death. It said, you do not cross Rome. That's what the cross said. Only Jesus can take the cross and say, it is a, a tool For his victory. Why? Because Jesus didn't remain dead on the cross. But he rose again. And so what was a sign of the Roman victory. Became a sign of the victory of Jesus Christ. Above all things. And that's why we see in the next passage. That humility. Verses 9 through 11. That humility comes in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Humility comes in the lordship of Jesus Christ. So in America today, it's really popular and very acceptable to say that Christ is our example. Here's where we break down. Here's where we in this room kind of get the rub in a different way and and we get conflict with the world around us. Because we say that Christ isn't just our example, but he's our Lord. Verse 9. Therefore, God has exalt, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus took the cross and God exalted him. The humble is exalted. And that's where we see that the lordship of Christ is necessary for our humility. You won't truly be a humble person unless you bow your knee to King Jesus. That's what that means. The question that we are to ask ourselves is are you surrendered to this Jesus Not only do you follow his example, not only do you consider him a good teacher, but will you call him Lord? That's the question that we have to ask. Humility begins with surrender. The other day we were walking in the graveyard. We live right across the street from the graveyard. You think, man, what is this kid? What is this guy doing with his kids through the graveyard? We're not visiting anybody. We're actually just walking through the graveyard. There's a bald eagle in Greenwood Cemetery graveyard, by the way, and there's Pokemon Go areas there. So me and the kids we go through the graveyard and do that. Um, but in this particular time, we were walking through the graveyard, and I was pondering all these. I mean, you, you just look. All, It's a beautiful place, by the way. If you go to Greenwood Cemetery, it's absolutely beautiful. Rolling hills, beautiful big oak trees. It's just a landmark for central Florida. And as I see all these graves, I'm thinking, every person here is bowed before the king. Every person here is bowed before the king. They're all surrendered. The question for us is, will we surrender on this side of death or the other side of death. Because if we surrender on this side of death, then we receive all the blessings that come with the work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness for a life that we do not deserve, but that he gives us, which is eternal splendor in heaven. And if you surrender not on this side of death, but you bow the knee on the other side of death, then you will suffer the eternal consequences and horror of hell because you have not bowed the knee on this side of life. Humility says, I worship Jesus and he is my king of kings and lord of lords and he died for me, so I live for him. Will you surrender? And the second question I have for you, is will you grow in humility? Will you grow in humility? Humility is not simply something that we surrender to one time and we have it. Humility is something that we continually surrender to the work of Jesus Christ for to empower us day by day so that we would walk in Him. Humility, says John Stott, is your greatest friend so we as the church must grow in humility and if you decide that you'll grow in humility there are five things I want to leave you with as we apply this number one look to the cross look to the cross there is no room for pride at the cross it crushes all pride look to the cross and see what Jesus and that you can be more humble than you are now. Don't look to your left or your right or to somebody else on TV. Look to the cross and see how you can grow in humility. Number two, look to God's word. The very act of opening your Bible and receiving something from the Lord says that you don't know it all. The very act of opening God's word and allowing God's word to pour into your life is to say that you need that more than bread. And I'll say this on the other side. If you don't look to God's word, it is arrogance and pride because you think you don't need it. Look to God's word. Number three, open your heart to prayer. We live in such a society of independence. You know when we're on our knees, you know what it says? We are dependent. We need God more than we need life. And so we bow our knees and we open our hearts to prayer. Number four, serve others. Serve others. Christians shouldn't be marked by our good works in our service to one another. Like Booker T. Washington, chopping wood is not beyond you. It is not above you. And so engage in the menial things, in the small tasks to show that you serve a great and big and high and majestic God. And number five, obey King Jesus. Obedience says I am not in control. But God is, and because he is, I do what he says. Obey King Jesus. When you obey, you are obeying the king of kings. When you obey the word of God, when you obey the prompts of the Holy Spirit, you are obeying the exalted king who is above all. And it's at King Jesus that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord and I'll ask you the question again are you surrendered to him I don't mean were you surrendered to him 10 years ago did you take that step I mean right now is he Lord over your life is your life a demonstration of the reality that you are bowed before King Jesus and if so we invite you to the communion table Receive the broken body and shed blood, which is humility put on display for you. Grow in humility through your surrendering to Jesus Christ right now and watch God move in marvelous, marvelous ways. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the humility that we have in Jesus for the grace that's been offered by him. God, we know your word says that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. Oh God, we don't want you to oppose us, but we want your grace. And so God, we bow our knees in humility and we confess, God, our need for you. And we say to you, Lord, would you be in control? Would you move us? Would you stir us? Would you change us? And God, would you allow us to walk in humility, grow in humility, to see that Jesus Christ, you are magnified, so that God, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers, they as well will see you high and exalted. In Jesus' name, church says, Amen.